It is a, an exciting time to be a part of what God is doing here in Hagerstown. Um, just looking back over the last three months, it, I, I, I just almost can't contain the joy that it just is overflowing inside of me. And I hope that you feel and sense that as well. Um, I wake up on Sunday mornings and like bread, I don't hear church bells, but I do rejoice the, in the fact that I get to celebrate that as I rise from my sleep and the Lord has sustained me, he's done that through the power of his resurrection and we celebrate his resurrection on this day together as saints of Christ. And so it's a privilege to be with you guys here this morning. With that in mind, I just want to invite you to go to the Lord with me in prayer and uh, just ask him to continue to bless our time together. And would you pray with me? God, you are a God who both sees and knows. And so we ask that you would let us see. Jesus, you are the victorious one. So we come to you this morning and we ask you that you would give us your victory. Spirit, you are full of power. And so we ask that you would fill us this morning with your power. As we listen, as we hear your words preached this morning, as we hear them sung, as we hear them prayed, we pray that you would change our hearts, Spirit, that you'd come over us, that you would empower us for the things that you've called us to do, both to believe and to act this morning and this week as we move forward. Father, we thank you for the the victories, the power and the strength that you've given to us this past week, and we ask again for this week that you would sustain us. Father, that Hagerstown would continue to more and more every day look different as a result of the work that you've done in and through us. Father, that, that you would shine the light through Jesus Christ into our hearts and that that would be reflected through this body, through this gathering out into the world, out into uh, Hagerstown, into the county. Father, we pray these same things would take place at Virginia Avenue Baptist Church as Pastor Jerry faithfully preaches the word. We don't just pray that here, but we, we pray that that this city would see the light in that church and the light in this church and, and dozens and dozens of other churches that you have called and they're faithful here in this city. We pray that they would continue to shine that light and not just here, not just at Virginia Avenue, but also all the way across on the other side of the world as brothers and sisters, as, as Jacob and Lindsay and their children, as they come to you this morning, they ask in faith that you would fill them with your power, that you'd empower them with your spirit. We pray that you'd answer that request as well. That we pray that here in this place as we meet, As the light is shed abroad here, we pray that it would light this place even throughout the week. We lift up this school to you. We pray your protection on on this school. We pray your light to be shed abroad again. That lives would be changed as a result of, of relationships, of testimony, of direct and explicit explanations of the gospel and the hope that we have. And we pray that this school, the students, all the way to the principal and everyone in between, that they would not just hear of the hope, but they would embrace the hope that we embrace this morning as your saints. Father, we pray that you'd continually, as you have been, grow us as we look to your word, not just on Sunday mornings, not just in our D groups, but in our quiet time. Father, we pray that the, the fathers in this building, in this room right now, Father, that they would sense a, a, a deeper desire and dependence on your word that they've never felt before. Father, the single folks here this morning, that they would as well. That as we gather, not just um, in our D groups and not just on Sunday morning, but as we gather in our homes and as friends over coffee, that the word would continually be the center point of our conversation. And that in that Spirit, that you would grow us. We pray that these things be done in the name of Jesus because there's no other name by which we can call upon to fulfill these. In the name of Jesus, we pray. 
Amen. Church, it is a privilege, as I said, to be here with you. My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here. And as we get into our time this morning, right before we actually jump into the the sermon, I want to share something with you. Um, In just a few weeks, we have the opportunity to celebrate Good Friday. So on Friday, April 19th, we will join Virginia Avenue Baptist Church to celebrate Good Friday. Good Friday is, is a very special day for the Christian. It's the day that we recognize Jesus' death on the cross. And here on that day, we acknowledge that Jesus took the sin of the saints, both mine and yours, and he willingly and he thoughtfully died on the cross. He was obedient to the death of the cross. And Paul skillfully describes what Jesus did when he said this, for our sake he made him sin, to be, who knew no sin, to become sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The fact that, that Jesus was able to forgive sins was because he became obedient to the death of the cross. So we celebrate Good Friday together, and this is an awesome opportunity for us to not just celebrate the death of our Savior, the sacrifice that he committed on our behalf, but also to be united with another brother, uh, a sister church here in this city. So this will be a unique time for us. There'll be more information that's coming out. Uh, you can feel free to look them up online. Uh, Jerry Cooper, Pastor Jerry Cooper, has been a dear friend of mine for some time now. He's a faithful uh, minister of the word, and so it'll be a special time as we celebrate the sacrifice that Jesus did on our behalf there on Friday the 19th. So join us at 7 p.m. It'll be a great opportunity. Um, I also want to just share another piece of information um, some of you may have know this about my family, but we, Sarah and I went through a little bit of a struggle about 14 years ago. And in that, our son was born. Uh, and truly, he's not stopped giving us trouble since then. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. No, he, he, he's a blessing. But, but I'll say this. We, we had to use um, the Ronald McDonald House. And uh, it was a privilege. We didn't have enough money to be renting hotels all the time and going to see the different doctors and extended stays months on end. We didn't have the, the, the ability to stay in hotels. And, and traveling back and forth was a difficulty as well. And uh, Ronald McDonald opened their house. And I'm not preaching about Ronald McDonald. I just want to share something with you. This is an illustration. They opened their house to us, and they gave us a place to stay, whether we were in Knoxville, whether we were in Johnson City, wherever we went, whatever the procedure was happening, if we needed to stay the night, we had a place to stay. And so now every time, and I don't go to McDonald's often, as you can tell. No, just I love that place. I, matter of fact, one day this week I went three times. Um, but anyway, every time I go, if they ask me, are you, are you interested in giving to the Ronald McDonald house, I cut them off and I say yes. And I automatically give them money. And here's why. Because I know that it changes lives. I know what that money can be, is used for. And so I, I'm not encouraging you to give the Ronald McDonald House. Do or don't, whatever. That doesn't matter. But what I'm getting at is this. We have an awesome opportunity as a church to give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. And I can tell you from experience, just like I can about Ronald McDonald, if it was not for that offering, if it wasn't for that organization, giving 100% of all that money that they receive directly to churches just like this one, then this church wouldn't exist. I'm sure that God in his sovereignty would, would use some other means, but I can tell you this right now. We would not be here if it weren't for the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. So I want to encourage you guys to give and to give sacrificially. Sarah and I have been thinking and praying about for months what we would give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. And I can, I can, as I can see with the, with, the, with the goal slide that we just saw a moment ago, many of you have given as well. And so I'm going to thank you for that and encourage you to continue. It's a great cause. Do or don't give to Ronald McDonald, but definitely consider what God would have you to give to Annie Armstrong Easter offering. It's an awesome opportunity. I can't, uh, can't say that enough. 
This morning we find ourselves in Judges chapter 6. And the book of Judges and the book of Joshua, they, they uh, connect right here and they overlap slightly. And so at the end of Joshua, he exhorts the people, you might remember this in your reading, to follow the Lord and to finish taking the land. To follow the Lord and to finish taking the land. And then he dies. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of dying. We're moving quickly and so leaders, they come and they go, right? Uh, so he dies. Now, when, when Moses died, it was a very clear uh, transition. Who would be the next leader? Who's the next leader? Well, it's Joshua. Moses is dead. Now it's Joshua. And it doesn't, it's not the same thing when Joshua dies. Now, it's not because of lack of planning. They actually enter into the land. And then Joshua says this. Hey, the, the land is divided up. All the tribes are to go their own separate ways. And as you go, you're to lead yourselves. Tribe leads, this, leads themselves. They raise their own leaders up. They already have their own elders. And they are, in a sense, just diverse. Unified, in a sense, but diverse as well. And so there's no one leader over the people. When Joshua dies, during his life, they, they, they follow the Lord. He's a great leader. In his absence, the people began as the elders that were ruling at that time and ruling well under Joshua, as they go and pass on, the children of Israel and the respective tribes, they begin to turn from the Lord. And so um, each tribe, in a sense, is ruling themselves. Now, the book of Judges describes this time period. And it's, it's, Judges is actually, there, it's actually a, a role. There's many judges here listed in the book of Judges. And when you think of judge, don't think of a judicial system. I want you to more think of a, a general or a military leader. Um, some people say more of like a tribal leader. And so God would raise up a strong uh, person in, uh, from one of the tribes and his spirit would be upon them and they would help the, to lead the people in a specific situation like Esther for such a time as this. And this morning, we want to take a look at a specific man by the name of Gideon. And Gideon, um, uh, his story takes up quite a bit of, of, of the space here in Judges and I know that it will be an encouragement to you. And I want to look at the beginning of, of Gideon's life, the call of Gideon. So if you have your Bibles with me this morning, it'll also be on the screen. We'll be in Judges chapter 6, and we'll read verses 1 through 16. So read the words of the Lord with me. It says in verse number 1, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand, or the power, of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them and they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as, as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. But both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Verse 11 says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth of, at, at Ophrah, and belonged that, or, which belonged to Joash the Abazirite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, 
If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all these wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go, in this might of yours, and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me this morning? God, these are your words. There's no power in anything that I can say this morning that I can bring to the people. There's no witty uh, outline or, or phrase that will change lives. The, the power is in your word and in your spirit as it works through that. And so we lay these things before you. We ask that you would change us that you'd draw us to yourself, that you'd encourage us, that you'd strengthen this people. Father, we pray that this church would be stronger, that we'd be more faithful to you, that we would be greater sanctified as a result of our time spent together this morning, not because of any one man or any song that we sing, but because of the word that we cling to. We pray that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen. As we walk through the text this morning, I always think it's helpful for us to have a bit of a framework or a skeleton for us to anchor ourselves to as we, as we navigate through. And so I'll give you these three parts that we'll kind of park in, and what, some of them we'll spend more time in. But the first one is this. It's called the call of Gideon. The call of Gideon. We'll look at Gideon and when he's first called from the, or by the Lord and what he does initially. We'll go on to look at the story of Israel. So we'll zoom out from Gideon. We'll zoom out to see the entire story of Israel in the book of Judges. And then we'll also then end on the promise of Jesus. So the call of Gideon, we'll zoom out to the story of Israel, and then we'll look forward to the promise of Jesus. And so verses 1 through 10, they set the stage this morning. The curtains open, and we see the people of Israel doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. What happens, God gives them into the hand of the Midianites seven years Remember, this is what God had promised them at Sinai. This is what Moses reminded them about, exactly this taking place. He reminded them it would take place right before he passed. Joshua did the same thing right before he passed as well. If you do evil, God will punish you. It's a good reminder for us today to remember that, that God will judge. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The one who sows to his flesh will reap from the flesh corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. So reaping what we sow. Then this is Judaism 101. That they're not to have any other gods. This is Yahwehism 101. This is the basis of the principle that there's not to be any other gods, and yet they, they go against that. So then God punishes them by removing his protection and giving them into the hands of the Midianites and this group of people were basically like the marauders that you find on Bugs Life, right? So you got Flick, the bunch of ants. You guys remember that old Pixar movie? Uh, you got uh, the ants are being oppressed by the grasshoppers. It's the same idea here, right? They're, 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 they work hard all year long, and right as they are about to harvest their crops, these grasshoppers just swoop in and take everything and leave nothing for Israel. And they're suffering physically. You know they're already suffering spiritually. That's how they got into this place. So it's a bad time to be an Israelite. The Bible actually compares them to locusts, though. So, so it's very similar to Bug's life. But God says, I will not be mocked. He's not like grandma. He's not like mom. He won't threaten 
with empty promises. When God says something, he will do it. The story goes on to say, that's the first part, but the story goes on to say in in verse 7, that the people of Israel then cry out to the Lord on account of the Midianites. And God responds by sending the prophet to Israel. And it's implied here that they don't even know why the Midianites are there. If you hear Gideon's testimony, he's like, I don't even know why this is happening. This doesn't line up with what the, the God or our fathers told us about you, Yahweh. They, they didn't tell us this. They told us that you were a good God, that you provided, that you rescued, that you delivered. And now we're not seeing that. Apparently, the, the parents had not done a good job of, 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 of recounting what Joshua and Moses and Yahweh had warned them about, that if they turned against God, then his, the covenant would be broken and his promises would be off. So God, in his mercy, reminds them. They're, they're almost like the guy at the party that's leaned up against the, awkwardly leaning up against the wall, and he's hitting the light switch, and the lights are flickering, and he doesn't know why it's doing that. He doesn't know why the lights are flickering. He doesn't know why they turn off. And somebody has to go up and say, you're, you're leaning on the switch. So God in his mercy sends somebody to graciously come and say, hey, this is why this is happening. So in the verses following verse 7, we understand that they come to know. This is, the prophet speaks and says, it's because you've turned against God. He, remember, he reminds them of what God had told him. So it, it hadn't been, if it hadn't been for God sending this prophet, the people wouldn't have known. They'd forgotten and then if it hadn't been for God raising up Gideon, the people would never have repented and seen victory. So let's look at the call of Gideon. Let's look at how God actually raises Gideon up. God appears to Gideon in similar fashion as Joshua. We read there, he calls him to action. And he says, have not I called you? Have not I commanded you? He gives him this huge assignment. You, as one man, you're going to strike the Midianites and you're going to run them out of here. So Gideon's to do some great things. And I'll tell you this from the onset. God is not using Gideon because of his courage because as you see, Gideon was often afraid. Gideon was not a man of courage. God's not using him because of his heritage because if you look here, and we'll flesh this out a little bit more in just a moment, but Gideon's own family was very unfaithful to Yahweh. Very unfaithful to him. As a matter of fact, the very property where, where um, most of the uh, idol worship And false uh, sacrifices to a false god are taking place, are taking place on Gideon's property, on his father's property. And so his family, there's no good heritage there. So God's not coming to him because of that. He's not coming to him because of his faith, because he has very little, very little. Why is God using Gideon? God is using Gideon because of his faithfulness and because of his mercy because of his faithfulness and because of his mercy. And I hope that that brings you a little bit, just as we swing past that. I hope that brings you a little bit of comfort today. Wherever you are, whatever stage of life you're in, that God would use somebody despite their family, despite their courage, despite their faith, that God would still use them. And how would God use Gideon? He would use him by giving him his presence. This is what we looked at last week and even the week before, that God's presence is greater than the plans of men. We, sit, we look at Gideon and we say, this doesn't even make sense that God would use Gideon. Well, God's plans and his, and his presence are greater than our plans or our, or our understanding. Verse 16 tells us, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. See, that, that's the power that Joshua had. A power that didn't make sense. We'll, we'll see Joshua, or, uh, Gideon's most famous a story told about him, how he defeats the Midianites with 300 men. 
and chases them down. That doesn't even make sense. Why does, it, why does it take place? How does it even happen? Because of the presence of God. So Gideon does quite a bit. What all does he do? He would defeat the Midianites in his lifetime. To some degree, he would unify the people and he would begin to purge the land of false worship. And again, Gideon's best known for his battle against the three, or with the 300 against the thousands in the army of the Midianites. But before he could remove that physical stronghold of the Midianites in their land, taking their stuff, God would use him to remove the spiritual stronghold. And that was the altar to Baal. You see, the presence of the Midianite stronghold is a direct result. It's a symptom of a deeper issue. The fact that the Midianites would be in their land was a punishment that God had given to them. He had subjugated them to that. Why? Because they had broken his law. Israel was worshiping other gods because they never finished defeating and destroying the enemy and tearing down their pagan altars. So as we get excited and we hear this story about how God is going to use Gideon to remove the physical presence of the enemy, God realizes and knows, even though we don't oftentimes, that the spiritual stronghold would first need to be removed in his life. If he was going to have victory on the battlefield, he would have to have victory at home with these idols. So God had clearly told them the dangers of not completely removing the idolatry of the land. And that makes sense, doesn't it? See, that was the problem. If, if Gideon were to, to leave the strongholds there in his own property, if he were to continue as a family to worship Baal among other gods, including Yahweh, then God knew that that was going to be a, a, a rough road for them. Continually, as they tried to fight the Midianites, they wouldn't, God wouldn't be with them. He would continually give them into the hand of the Midianites. And so first, they would have to defeat the strongholds here at home. And that makes sense. To attack the symptoms is, is foolish. To go to the, to the cause of the problem makes much more sense. Oftentimes, the symptoms in our lives, they let us know that we're sick. And so if we have a runny nose, some of you, that's not too difficult for you to imagine what that's like. If you have an itchy throat, you have some congestion in your head, you wake up that way and you, you're wondering, these are all symptoms, what's going on? You'll go to the doctor and oftentimes they'll give you some type of a prescription or, or recommend some over-the-counter Claritin or something like that. And while those, these, those things often help, most of the time, what those medications are doing is just alleviating the symptoms and giving you the ability, your body, to heal itself. And oftentimes, that's what you need. So the pet dander that's in your home or, or the, the cherry blossoms and all their beauty and all their pollen swirling around, covering your car, changing the paint color, all of those things are what's causing you to have these issues, right? So then you take Claritin and it masks the symptoms, but you need something greater than that. You need the pollen to be removed from your life. You need the pet dander to be removed from your life. Often, I've enjoyed the Febreze commercials. I haven't seen them in a while, but they were pretty entertaining there for a while, weren't they? I, oftentimes, you could get a laugh out of those commercials, but I never could get over the fact that, that Febreze was just masking a scent, just masking a smell. It was masking the filth. And in, the, in the advertisements, they like to make you think that they actually are magically making a smell go away. But if you have a teenage boy, you know that that doesn't, that doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't matter how many bottles of Febreze that you exhaust on your son's room. If there's a bowl of half-eaten ramen and chicken under the, under the bed and a box of half-eaten pizza or in, and socks that are melding together and creating some type of super uh, disease, we, we don't know. None of those things are going to be removed by Febreze. All you'll have is just the smell masked. You can try it, pull those things out from underneath the bed and just begin to soak them and it will still be filth. 
You'll still have filth right there. And so it makes sense for us as we consider the, the, which came first. Should they remove this, the physical presence of the Midianites or should, should they remove the spiritual presence of the idol worship, which is caused, one has caused the other. And so God in his wisdom instructs Gideon to first remove the physical or the spiritual stronghold. It would have to be removed first. Their slavery that they had to the spiritual forces of the land of the land was far more serious than the physical presence of the Midianites. That's hard for us to believe oftentimes. For the Israelites, they may think, this, is not, this isn't priority number one. Why are we doing these things? We should be removing the Midianites. No, God says, let's, let's work here at home. And that's where the real battle is. So I'm going to spend most of our time this morning discussing and, and looking and wringing out of this text how we can defeat the strongholds, how we can pull those altars down in our lives. And so the same night that God comes to Gideon to address uh, him, calling him this mighty man of value, he also instructs him to tear down the altar for Baal and Ashtoreth that's in the stronghold. Ashtoreth is this, this uh, totem pole of sorts that functions as the female counterpart to Baal. And so they work together in this pagan uh, culture. And if Gideon was to deliver the Israel from the Midianites, he would first need to, to remove this cause of idolatry in his own life and in the life of his family because it is what initially led God's people to break, to, to break ties with him. And so God commanded Gideon to destroy his father's altar to Baal, to tear, to tear down this totem pole, and then Gideon in, in its place was supposed to build a proper altar to the Lord. And then he was supposed to use the, the, um, the bull that he used to tear down the altar to sacrifice then to the Lord. And you can read this with me in Judges chapter 6, verses 25 to 27. The Bible says, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull, the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Ashtoreth that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the mountain stronghold there with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it, to, offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Ashtoreth that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. The Israelites had been asking themselves, why are we losing so many battles? Why is the Lord not going out with us? Why are the Midianites ruling over us? The prophet comes and says, it's because you forsook God who delivered you and covenanted with you and you've worshiped false idols. My question for you today, as God comes to the, as we see God coming to Gideon and saying, tear, the, tear, tear these altar, altars down and build new ones. Build real pure ones to me. My question to you this morning is, what are the false idols that are in your life? What is, what is God shining a light on even this, this, this morning and saying in your life this is an altar, this is an idol to a false God and you need to tear it down? Where is that? I want, I want to encourage you to just park right here and ask God to reveal that to you. Seriously. And don't, and don't look around, as, don't think about the city of Hagerstown and think about the, the idols or the, 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 the idol worship that we see in our culture today. Don't look outside, don't, look at, don't think of the places of debauchery. Think of your own life. What spiritual idols are in your own life? Ask the Lord right now to show those to you and to reveal them to you as we move forward so that as we look at the life of Gideon, as we look at this testimony of the word of the Lord here, we can draw from that and begin to attack and, and move these, or these altars and idols out of our own lives. So there's a few principles here in the story that we can apply to our own lives as we see what God commands Gideon to do. And the first is this, that there's strength in numbers. 
Gideon's intelligent enough to know that as he considers tearing that altar down, that he can't do it by himself. So he brings a bull with him that God told him to do that, but he also brings some men, some servants that, of his father, and they go together to fight and tear this altar down. And the fight against sin, or the encouragement for us would be to not go alone. It's impossible to fight alone. To, to remove sin and idolatry in our own lives, we can't do it unless we acknowledge that we need the brothers and sisters in Christ that God has given to us. Gideon doesn't go alone and neither should we. We must tear down the altars in community and together. I pity the Christian who wanders through this land alone, that wanders through this, uh, travels through this journey alone. When they come across an altar that needs to be torn down, they, they struggle to do it. They don't have the strength to do it alone and it overcomes them and they end up succumbing to its power. Oftentimes we, we do these things alone because we are too embarrassed to reveal the secret sin that's in our lives. Instead of confessing that to somebody and asking for assistance, asking them to help us tear that altar down, what we end up doing is we become victims to that very sin for years and years, even decades out of our own lives as Christians when we should be living the victorious Christian life. Instead of that, we live in defeat. There's power in the body of Christ if you'll access it. There's power in the body of Christ if you'll access it. And living in isolation seems to be safe at the time and in the moment, but it's really the furthest thing from safe. My prayer is for Hagerstown Church that not just in word, but in deed, that we would recognize and believe that there is strength in numbers. We wouldn't just say that we want community, but that we would actually long for it. We wouldn't just hope that we would have it, but we would act upon it. We wouldn't just hope that people would help us, that we, but that we would help others preemptively. This is what God has called us to do in the church. And this is where we'll see victory when we recognize that there is strength and numbers. Gideon did it. Did a lot of things wrong. He did a lot of things right. He recognized there is strength in numbers. Another thing that we notice from here is that what's been removed must be replaced. This is a principle that God demonstrates to us. As he tells Gideon, hey, you're going to tear the altar to Baal. You're going to tear that down. You're going to cut down that totem pole. And you're going to burn those things up. You're going to, on the new altar that you're going to build to me. This is a wonderful principle. What's been removed must be replaced. It wasn't just to tear it down, but he's to install a new one. And then he was to commit the ultimate disgrace against this pagan cult. He was to take the bull that he had used to tear down that altar. He was to sacrifice it on the new altar that he built to Yahweh. And he, for fire, he was to use the totem pole as fuel. This is, a, this is a wonderful thing. The application is clear. We're to swap altar for altar. We're to swap habit for habit, thought for thought, belief for belief. And so as you look in your life, as you see what God is revealing to you, the, the altars and the idol worship that is in your life, consider this. What, what, as you tear these things down, what do you need to put in their place? Perhaps it's some untruth that you've been considering, that you've been living in light of, and God is saying that he's revealing to you that this way that you've been operating, this, this lie, tear that down and remove it and replace it with this truth. This habit, this action that you do on a regular basis, stop, cease and desist, but instead place this habit in there. It could be as practical as not doing this on the weekdays and doing this, whatever it is. I'm gonna put a plug in for the Bible reading plan. One of the things that I, I, that I find giving me the most spiritual growth 
is as I spend time reading through God's word, knowing that that week I'll spend time with my brothers and we'll confess sin, we'll encourage one another and show this is where God's growing me. This is where God's leading me. As I know in community, based on the word of God, that this thing has to be priority. And whatever it takes, if I have to remove this thing, this habit, it's fine. Whether it's sinful in nature or not, if I need to remove that to replace this, I will. This is a principle that we see habit for habit, thought for thought, belief for belief. Jesus gives us a parable in Luke chapter 11. It says in verse 24, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order, beautified, made pretty. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. The man that has a demon has, has, has cleaned up his life, right? And he's been, re, been healed of the demons or the spirits that were afflicting him. So that one spirit leaves, right? And he beautifies his place, but he doesn't put anything in its place. He sweeps out his, his house, so to speak. He sweeps out his soul and he says, I'm going to be better on moving forward. What ends up happening is that spirit doesn't find another place and it's ironic. He says, I'm going to go home, back to my soul, the old soul that I used to, but the, I, that I used to pester. And he returns to find it's all cleaned up, ready to receive him again. And he thinks, you know what? I'm going to have a party. So the evil spirit goes and gets six more and they come, or seven more and they come back. And they take up residence. And the, and the idea is this. If you don't put something back in its place, it's just going to get worse. As Christians, as we try to reform in our lives spiritually, we say, I want to do better. I'm going to stop doing this, whatever it is. I don't, don't want to be plagued by this sin anymore. And so what we try to do is we try to get, remove that from our lives. And we white knuckle it. We say, we're not going to do that anymore. We sweep it out and we, 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 we power through. When we don't replace that evil spirit with the spirit of the Lord, then we end up being worse than we were initially. We become more, worse than we were initially. There's a vacuum in our lives at that point. It should be filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet so many other idols will be pulled in and worship them instead. And so you can't just remove it. If you say, I'm believing this lie or I'm, I'm working towards this one thing, you need to remove that and replace it with the truth of Scripture. Swapping a habit for a habit, a truth for a truth. Perhaps the best financial advice that Sarah and I ever received was to, to give every dollar a job. You, you know, as you get paid, everything's asking for money, right? You've got all this money now. That's whatever day of the week it is. And now it's Friday. You just got paid. And, and now everything, all the bills come forward. And then you just start paying those. You, you spend all that money. And then you realize, I, I don't have enough money to do what I need to do. Well, if you give every dollar a job when you get paid initially, instead of there just being this vacuum, every dollar already has a job. And so at the end of the week, you, you've not blown all of your money. As soon as you get it, in a sense, it's already been spent. You've already spoken for each and every one. And that little trick can help you to handle your money and not waste it. That same idea we can apply to our lives. As we consider if we remove something, we can't just, we can't just let it be empty. We have to put something back in its place. So determining not to waste your money is not enough. It's the same with sin, with idolatry. You have to replace the altar that you're tearing down with a good one. You see, that's where the power's at. It wouldn't have been enough for them to just stop worshiping Baal and to tear that down because something else would have crept into their lives. They needed to stop worshiping Baal 
and start worshiping Yahweh. Stop sacrificing to Baal. Start sacrificing to Yahweh. What a wonderful lesson here. The third lesson that we see from the actions of Gideon is that we must act with urgency. We've got to act with urgency. And I think this might be the very problem that, that Israel had. Joshua commanded them and said, hey, you need to continue to rid the land of the Canaanites. You need to continue to pull down the altars. And what was taking place was they, they got complacent. They'd won some battles. They'd won some victories. Each tribe, as they separated out, continued to push out the Canaanites, to, con- to push out the Amorites. But what ended up happening was they got complacent. They'd come past an altar and they'd say, we're tired. We've worked hard today. Dad, there's an altar over there. We should tear it down. Son, you're right. We should, but not today. We'll get that another day. And what, the, what, what gets put off a day, gets put off a week, it gets put off a month. The sense of urgency that God had given to the Israelites had waned, waxed, it's gone away. You might have seen the, the recent commercial for the Purple Mattress, right? Several robbers, they're in the house and they're carrying this nice TV out and as they look over, they're like, oh, it's a Purple Mattress. They set the TV down, they're like, I've always wanted to try one of these, right? So they lay down and before they know it, they wake up. Who's next to them? Not only is the, the sun shining in the window, they're robbers, they like to do their work at night, there's also two policemen laying on the bed right next to them. Apparently, they had done the same thing. The police, the police officers had shown up and said, hey, there's two robbers. We need to arrest them. Hey, they're checking this mattress out. We should too, right? And so there's this funny picture of four men laying on this giant purple mattress just snoozing away, right? Get, getting the best sleep of their life. While we laugh at this, it is humorous, but it's a sobering parallel for the Israelites and for the Christians this morning. There's urgency, and yet we've fallen asleep. It's as if we wake up in the middle of the night, we hear a a crash and a thud, and we think, that's not right. Somebody's in my house. Maybe we even get out of our bed, we crack the door, and we look, and we see a shadowy figure creeping across with something in their hands, maybe a weapon. Instead of saying, we'll call the law, we'll make sure that that is removed from my house because of the danger. Instead, we lay back down on our purple mattress, and we hope that it goes away knowing full well that danger is in our house, how foolish would that be? None of us would do that. And yet, what have, what have we done? As Christians, we've allowed altars to stay in our homes. We've allowed altars to stay in our lives. And I'm not speaking of some physical stone altar or some type of sin, some type of idolatry that we've allowed to, to stay in our lives and we've just gone back to sleep. We must act with urgency. This is the very thing that God had called them. This is the very, called them to do. This is the very thing that was causing them all the struggles that they'd had to date. All of this idolatry. The passage goes on, verse 28. It says, When the men of the town arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the ashtra beside it was, was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to those who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death this morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on, the, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbabel. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. We begin to walk in obedience 
to the Lord. When we begin to tear down altars, make, make sure that you know this. Others will notice. Others will notice. Did you see what happened when the least of the house obeyed the Lord? When the least of Joash's house obeyed and tore it down. The one who was the weakest and of a weak tribe, what does he do? He's making a stir here in this town. The whole family and even part of the neighborhood ends up, as we see later on in subsequent passages, they turn to the Lord as a result of what Gideon does on that day. See, Joshua had famously declared that he and his house, they were going to what? They were going to serve the Lord. It's not, that's not true of Gideon, right? He, Gideon's family had chose on that day who they would serve, and it was the God of, of the Amorites, the gods of the Amorites. This is who Gideon's father was. Remember, in Gideon's own backyard, his father's house was where these, this altar and this idol were. So what a great lesson for the young people here this morning. Even if, even if your parents aren't doing what's right, God can still use you. Not in pride and arrogance to cut people off at the knees, but to demonstrate to them and to call them to repentance, to call them to true faith in the real, true God. So Gideon claimed to be the weakest and the youngest in his family, and yet he leads his father back to the Lord in a sense. Gideon was beginning to free the people from the power of the idols that distracted them. So the town folk, what do they want to do? They want to kill Joash, or Joash's son, Gideon. But Joash wisely calls out, if, if Baal really is God, he can defend himself. Sarcastic and ironic in a sense. He's saying, you can, see, you can begin to sense this shift in Joash's heart. He says, if, 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 if Baal really is powerful, then Gideon's, Gideon's he's, he's damned already. Baal will destroy him. Baal will get him. But Baal, if, Baal, if Baal's not a real God, then Gideon will be safe. So the, the people of the town, in some sense, maybe even sarcastically begin to call him Jerubbaal, which means let God, or let Baal contend with him. And he uses that, that, that name moving forward. And every single day that Gideon lives, every single victory that Gideon experiences and leads the people through is another slight, is another attack against the name of Baal. It's an accusation against Baal's power or lack thereof. Church, before God's people can experience victory with their hands, physically, they must have victory with their hearts spiritually. There's got to be victory in their hearts spiritually. You'll never experience true victory as a parent. You'll never experience true victory as an evangelist among your friends and family and neighborhood. As a disciple, you'll never experience victory as a church unless we remove the idols of our hearts. Unless we remove the idols of our hearts, the altars in our lives to sin and to self. As you tear down the, the idols and the altars in your heart, spiritually speaking, remember this, there's strength in numbers. That what's removed must be replaced and that there is a sense of urgency that we cannot neglect. So Gideon, it's sad, he does experience quite a, a, a good bit of victory in, the, in his life as a leader. God uses him to do some great things. He leads the people to follow the Lord, but after he dies, the people are actually worse than before he came onto the scene. Imagine that. The life of Gideon actually serves as a, as a perfect snapshot or a picture, a depiction of the story of Israel. Again, if we zoom out and look at the, the story of Israel, it's, it's this, but just repeated. And so God blesses 
And the people respond by straying. Then God punishes and the people respond by repenting or at least crying out. And God would send a deliverer of sorts or, or a prophet. The people would, what, rinse and repeat. It's this vicious cycle. And every single time, the state of the people of Israel, the state of Israel would be worse and worse and worse spiritually. And this is the commentary. This is what we pick up and, and read in Judges chapter 2. It gives us the outline of the book. It tells us this is what the book of Judges is all about. It says things like the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord. They went after other gods. They provoked the Lord to, the anger, uh, the Lord to anger. It's saying that repeatedly this is what took place. It goes on to say in, in chapter 2 verse 14 he gave, that God gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their surroundings, their enemies, they couldn't withstand their enemies any, anymore. Whenever they would march, God wouldn't be with them. Matter of fact, he'd be against them. It's just as the Lord warned. And the Lord, it says, judges. Repeatedly we see this. And he would save them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And even then, they wouldn't, God, God would send these judges and the people wouldn't listen. They would go after the old gods again. Whenever the Lord would raise up judges for them again, the Lord was with that judge, it says. He would save them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, but then when that judge would die, they would return back to where they had been before. So this is the, the cycle of Israel, time and time again, under the time of the judges. It's, it's pretty familiar to us. We've already seen that take place under the, life, under the leadership of Moses. We've seen that take place under the leadership of Joshua. And on the one hand, Israel treasures her call to be God's covenant people, but on the other hand, she can't resist the temptation of the prevailing Canaanite religious cult and culture of the day. They find themselves caught in this vicious cycle and you'd think at some point they might even just say, the conclusion is we can't do this. We can't follow God. We can't, we can't be faithful to him. Actually, Joshua came to that conclusion. Actually, at the end of Joshua chapter 24, Joshua says this, you're, you're not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He'll not forgive your transgressions or your sins. And if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn, you, turn, you and, turn on you and do harm and consume you after having done you good. Joshua says, you can't, Israel. Why would you, he, it's, it's, it's crazy. He says, why would you even want to, to take this covenant with God? You can't fulfill it. You can't keep your end of the bargain. Israel had many great leaders, as great as they were. Moses and Joshua, as great as they were, they could not lead the people to do right. Sometimes in their presence and never in their absence. Israel had many judges. Some of them weren't so bad. Some of them did some great things. But even through all of these judges, we see that they did some good. But at the end of their lives, it was just worse than it had been beforehand. Israel goes on to have many kings. We're in the Kings and Kingdoms series, part of, part of the, the Old Testament here as we look through Kings and Kingdoms, coming to the time where we start to see some kings being raised up. Just a few weeks, we'll see the first king of Israel. We'll see the second king of Israel. And even as, as God brings many great kings to Israel, several great kings, and many kings out of that, we still see that none of them could keep the people faithful. None of them themselves could remain faithful to God. Why? None of them could remove all the altars. None of them could remove all the pagan influences in their lives. None of them could completely, even under David and Solomon, could drive out all of the Canaanites and all of the Amorites and all the Jebusites. It couldn't be done. 
So maybe you, like Israel, have come to that conclusion that you in your own life, you can't, you can't get to that point where you can lead your own soul, that you can lead your own life, and that you could completely rid your own soul of all the wickedness and evil that is a part of you. All the, the flesh that is in you. Mo, Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 30, remember we alluded to this about a month ago. In verse five he says, the Lord your God will bring you into the land. He's prophesying to Israel. He will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. And why would he do that? Why would he, why, why would he adjust their heart? Why would he change their heart? This is why, so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. You may love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. And church, this, this is the promise of Jesus. This is the promise of Jesus this morning. If this is you and you say, I'm like Israel. I'm struggling to to get to that point where I can truly rid myself of of the affections that I have for this world, the the desires that I have for for sin in my life and in this culture that I I live in, in this world where I walk. If it's you here this morning, there's the promise of Jesus that Moses alludes to. And that's that one day he will change your heart. He will take the heart of stone that you have and he will give you a heart of flesh. Moses is echoed in, in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul speaking in, or writing here in Romans chapter 7, verses 21 to 25. If you're taking notes, write those down. Romans 7, 21 to 25. Paul says this, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another war or law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So he states the facts. This is where I'm at. There's a war raging inside of me. The apostle Paul says this and then he cries out and he says, wretched man that I am. He cries out. Maybe you're there this morning in desperation. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He answers that question. It's the hope of Jesus. It's the promise of Jesus that Moses spoke about. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. With my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul says there's a war raging inside of me. I want to do right, but I also want to do bad. I want to do evil. He says I delight in God, but I also want to fight him. He exclaims in defeat almost, who will rescue me? Jesus, Jesus will rescue. And praise God, he will rescue you. There's a real hope here this morning that I wanna push out to you this morning. It's a tangible hope that as we hunt down Christian, as we hunt down altars and idols, spiritually speaking, in our lives, we know that one day, finally, we will be rescued. That God will remove all of those things from our own hearts. He will ultimately and finally rescue us. Christ will lead us finally to vanquish our foes and cause us to live, as Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, to live wholly devoted to God the Father. So my call to you as we look at this passage this morning, God's call to you from the life of Gideon is to remember this, that you you first must defeat the spiritual strongholds. You've got to remove the spiritual strongholds in your life if you're gonna have victory Some of you say, I don't know why I'm not having victory. It's because the the spiritual strongholds are still in your life. You're failing every day. 
So God extends and says, listen, the promise of Jesus can be extended to you as well. That he will give you victory. That you will finally and utterly vanquish the foes from your life, from your soul. You'll utterly vanquish the, all, uh, the, all, the idols and altars from your life. You know, in the month of March, we've been walking through in the Old Testament and ending in Jude, specifically, specifically verses 24 and 25. And, I, and while we're moving on today, I want, I want us to end the sermon time with this reading here. It's a doxology. Doxology, as we looked at the theology, as we looked at the truths, the practical applications of our lives, as we consider those things, good theology should lead us to doxology, which is praise. True study of God will lead us to true worship of God. So you don't have to read this aloud with me, but I really want you to allow this to just pour over you this morning. Jude, verses 24 and 25 say this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. God, we thank you for these truths that we've looked at this morning. That you and your mercy would give us this testimony of the life of Gideon, the story of Israel and the hope of Jesus. And as we consider the truths this morning, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged both to hunt down and to remove the, the idols and altars that are in our lives that are pulling us away, drawing our attention away from you. Father, there's no power in the altars. There's no power in the idols other than that they distract us from you. There's no other God beside you and yet we are distracted and we worship others. So oftentimes, God, we worship ourselves. Jesus, as I look at your church this morning, I pray that you would help us to see these truths. Many times as we consider ourselves to be worshiping the one true God, we worship the one true enemy, which is ourselves. So we pray, Spirit, in your power that we would tear those idols down, that we would erect in our lives new habits, new thoughts, new altars that worship you, that draw us to you and not away from you. And Jesus, we look to you and when, when we have no strength, when we have no power as a church, individually, we pray that you would empower us because we know that only through you, only through your death on the cross, only through your resurrection three days later can we truly defeat these. And so we give them to you. We ask that you, the only one who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the glory of God, we ask these things in your name. Amen.